I'm proud to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jari Chung. She is currently a senior general assignment reporter at the Los Angeles Times. She is focusing now on the medical and mental health issues that face veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. In her seven years at the Times, she has written about practically everything in Los Angeles, including earthquakes, brush fires, and the Miss LA Chinatown pageant. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Javri Chong. Hi, thanks for coming. I'm sorry, I'm just adjusting this microphone. We're supposed to put it really close. Um, well, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm glad that you guys got over whatever fear you might have had about swine flu and congregating in public places, because um, I think it's, you know, we, we have some interest, you know, interesting and important things to talk about um, today with veterans' issues. Um, so I just wanted to introduce uh, some of our guests here. We'll start uh, on the far side. Uh, this is uh, Major General Paul E. Mock. He was born in Burbank and began an Army career in 1973, um, which includes service in Germany, Croatia, and Korea. Uh, he was promoted to Major General in October of 2002. Um, he was mobilized for Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan in March of 2003. And from the summer of 2004 to 2005, he was based in Kuwait as the Commanding General uh, for the 377th Theater Support Command. Um, they were responsible for all theater-level logistics for Operation Iraqi Freedom, including fuel, tanks, ammunitions, and maintenance. Um, in 2005, he assumed the command of the 63rd Regional Readiness Command, which is based in Los Alamitos, and he recently retired um, this past December. And as if that weren't enough to do in his career, he also worked at the Los Angeles Police Department for 25 years. So... <laughs> um, there you go. <laughs> Uh, and then I'm going to introduce Dr. David Webb. He's a staff physician at the VA Long Beach uh, Healthcare System, and he's been a staff physician there since 1980. Uh, he's board certified in internal medicine and infectious diseases. Um, he currently serves as the chief of environmental and military medicine. So the environmental part means that he has responsibility for the prevention of infections in the hospital. And the military medicine part means that he does post-deployment evaluations of returning combat veterans and advises the transition program. Um, Dr. Webb also participates in the Department of Defense post-deployment health reassessment program at local military bases where combat veterans are reassessed six months after returning from deployment. Um, so he's seeing these guys just as they come in. Um. <laughs> and the third guest that I invited is um, Jennifer Sinclair. So, you know, I think it's important when we start to talk about these issues to kind of look at a case because I think it's really hard to understand some of the issues that go on without really kind of finding out what someone's personal experience is. So, um, uh, Jennifer is the, the sister of a, an Army captain named Peter Sinclair. Um, he died, unfortunately, last June. Um, so just wanted to introduce Jen. She uh, grew up in South Pasadena, so she's a, um, an L.A. girl. <laughs> um, she's seven, years, seven and a half years younger than her brother, and she was 13 when Pete enlisted in the Army. Um, she's just about to start law school when he joined the L.A. Uh, Police Department, and she now practices law in Connecticut. So even though her specialty is tax law, um, she learned very quickly <laughs> how to be her brother's advocate um, as he navigated through all these kind of complex uh, medical issues and the administrative system. And she always flew to his side when he needed help. So she was definitely in the thick of it. So that's Jen. <laughs> Um, so as I said, Pete died last June, um, and it was after three years of struggling to get better. Um, he had a very complicated clinical picture, um, but one that is not, it turns out, that uncommon. So um, I sort of think of his story as a, as a cautionary tale, um, you know, about what can happen, what has happened, and what kind of ought to be prevented. Um, all, all of this stuff is kind of a preview. I'm going to put in a plug here. It's a preview for a story that I'm working on for the LA Times. So watch this space. It's coming out soon. It's just in the process of being edit edited. So, um, so I thought we'd start out first talking about Pete's case and some of the problems that this exposes and then, you know, move on to try and look at, you know, where should we be focusing our attention and what are some things that, that we could do to make the process better. Um, so let's start out, I guess, with a with kind of a before and after. So I'm going to ask Jen, 
Tell us what Pete was like before he went to Iraq in 2004. Uh, Pete was, I think it's fair to say, larger than life. Uh, Pete was a very physically large man. He was very physically fit. Um, he was also just a wild wit. He was a very funny, outgoing, gregarious, very intelligent man. Um, he was the life of the party, and um, he, he just lived life to the fullest. Okay. Um, what I want to do now is read an email that Pete sent to Jen when he was in Iraq, and you'll see that there was a pretty massive change there. This is from Wednesday, January 12, 2005, sent at 6.46 p.m. I'm a mess, Jen. Just when I think, oh, I'm also going to edit this because of some language. Okay, so I'm a mess, Jen. <laughs> There's a soldier here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm a mess, Jen. Just when I think I have a handle on what's going to make me happy and what I'm good at doing, God takes it from me. I'm an effing mess. I take daily maintenance pills that would make an addict salivate. They tried everything they had. Last time I went into spasm and used something called ketamine. I asked mom what that was because it put me in a twilight zone I never want to revisit. I'm sure this is all happening to me for a reason. I should be dead many times over already. I'm scared the army's going to try and force feed a surgeon on me. I won't allow it. I'll keep my record from them when I redeploy and have LA's doc do it. I'm not thinking clearly. I can't sleep, and I'm very worried. Love you. So what happened, Jen? What was um, that about? Yeah, well, very briefly. Um, my brother had a very severe spine injury, and um, he needed to have back surgery. And he was in theater, and he was leading men. And it was very important to him to bring his men home. And he knew he was injured, and his doctors knew he was injured. He was medevaced repeatedly. And he stayed in theater, and he brought his men home. And we had to deal with the aftermath. When we got him home, he had uh, multiple uh, vertebral spinal fusion. He had a full titanium cage built around it with uh, seated cadaver bone. And he had a lot of other injuries, um, including fairly severe PTSD. He saw a lot of um, very horrific events. He was there in Baghdad the day that um, hundreds of children were brutally killed by a suicide bomber, and he was one of the first responders. And it just never really left him. And he was a very different man. But it was very important to him to bring his troops home and uh, I think he really sacrificed a lot of himself for, for other service members and their families. And how surprised were you by this change? I mean, you were talking about how your brother was a, a really strong guy, and he had mm -hmm. actually been in the first Gulf War, too. Right. So it's not like he didn't have experience with stressful situations. He was right. an LAPD officer down at, like, Nickerson Gardens and some of the right. toughest housing projects. Um, Pete was an older guy uh, to have been deployed. He was in his mid-30s when he went out. He had been, as Jari says, in the, uh, the first Gulf War, and he'd seen a lot. He was um, an officer with the LAPD. He did a lot of uh, anti-gang work. And he was, again, a very physically robust person, but he was always able to use humor to diffuse situations and to work out problems that he ran into. And I think throughout this entire time, he was able to always access humor in some way, shape, or form. But it was very difficult... Um, to get sort of these missives, you know, from the dark mm -hmm. and just hear and almost experience uh, for myself the anguish that he was going through. And I know that so many other people must have had similar experiences. So it was very hard to see the change and to see his personality darkening. So he came back from Iraq in 2005. Um, mm -hmm. Clearly he had a lot of problems. How did he try and get help? Uh, well, Pete came back through Puerto Rico. Um, he came back from the place uh, from, from which he was deployed. And it's, it's a very, very long and involved story, but needless to say, he came back. Um, he was kept in Puerto Rico on medical hold, and he reached out to me by phone for help because he wasn't getting the medical care that he needed, and he was very badly injured, and they didn't recognize it. So uh, in the near term, I flew to Puerto Rico. We had to um, find a place for him in the continental United States to receive treatment. Um, which is not easy. We brought him back. Uh, he was put into CBHCO, which is the California-based healthcare organization, I think. 
which has since been renamed, I think, yeah. the Wounded, War, uh, the wounded yeah. Warrior or something. And, and, and the point names. of this organization <laughs> was to take lightly wounded soldiers um, to bring them back into their homes to convalesce. The problem was Pete was not lightly wounded. Um, it was not a good fit, although we were glad to have him back in the continental United States to receive some care. Um, we were sent uh, through the military to a private physician who was not really of the caliber that we thought he should be seeing. For instance, he mislabeled the vertebrae on the, uh, the x-ray. So actually, uh, we did a lot of um, legwork ourselves, and we got to UCLA. And Pete had his spinal fusion here, um, and uh, by the chief of orthopedic spine surgery, we were very grateful that went well. Um, he had a lot of residual pain. Mm -hmm. And during this entire time, we were also working on his very uh, severe PTSD. We started working with the, um, a, a physician from the Veterans Administration uh, who we were directed to by the, the military. And then from there, various um, private practice physicians. But it's not easy. There is no one system of care. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was almost impossible to navigate and it was very frustrating for Pete as well as everybody else involved. Do you guys all know what post-traumatic stress disorder is or would you like the doctor here <laughs> to give his explanation? Okay, I think we're all right. Okay, well, so um, so General Mock then, uh, I know you tried to intervene in Pete's case. Um, when did you first realize that, that Pete was in trouble and what did you do? I gotta step back a little bit if I may. Okay. Um, just for clarification to the audience, when you hear um, about Pete deploying with, with injuries and assuming a leadership role that he's very proud of, uh, that, that's not uncommon. And uh, it, it's what leadership and soldiering is all about is, is going not at your own, worried about your personal discomfort, but how can you contribute uh, to the welfare of your soldiers in, in getting what the nation calls on you to do. Um, that, that's what really makes our soldiers so special. And, and I say soldiers, I'm talking about from all components, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Army, Coast Guard. Um, so that, that's not unusual. And, and these are stand-up Americans. And I, I got to tell you, from the bottom of my heart, uh, my service with uh, you know, men and women in, in uniform has just been superior. It's just been the greatest experience of my life. So I'm thankful for what Pete has done for this nation. And the St. Clair family, thank you for your strength. Um, what what I found with Pete St. Clair was is he was actually a, a member um, of the organization that I commanded after I redeployed back from Kuwait and Iraq. And we've gone through a lot of growth in the armed forces, especially between the active duty and reserve components. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but uh, soldiers on active duty are on active duty and they're tracked on their own personnel systems and pay systems. When your neighborhood National Guardsman or Army Reservist or Air Force Reservist is mobilized out of your community, um, the systems don't always match very well and it's real easy to lose track of them from the reserve component side. And so when a unit goes, they, they assess or become part of the active duty when they come back. Uh, most they're demobilized and then become back a part of the reserve component again. Uh, Pete's case was one of many that I was familiar with where they come back and they actually remain on the active duty system, uh, maintained for health care purposes, and, and the reserve component leadership can't see them in the databases. Um, I first learned about Pete and he'd been up at Fort Lewis, Washington under extended medical care for a number of months. The day that I found out, I scheduled that we had a soldier up there uh, under Pete's, with Pete's condition. You know, within a week, I was probably up there visiting him because I was pretty concerned that we had such a, a mismatch in the databases and the inability to take care of our soldiers. Um, that, that's why I first met Pete was up at Fort Lewis. Um, then, we, then we knew about him and tried to, to do a better job of tracking Pete. But I use it as an example of a very large organization called to war and systems don't always move as fast as they should. They're better now than they were, um, but they're still not quite where they need to be. So at least for a little while, you guys literally lost track of him. Oh, yeah. Among, there were several yeah. of them that I could name that that happened with. Yeah. 
Well, so when you went to go see him at Fort Lewis, where he was kind of in this transitional phase, they were trying to decide whether he should be kept in the army or whether he was just too hurt, I guess, to continue on. What did you see? I mean, what what did he look like there? And, and what did you think about that situation? Um, well, our, our purpose is when they're in medical hold status or in warrior transition status is to either return them back to active duty as a soldier or get them as a functioning member back in their communities and back to their civilian job. Um, quite candidly, when I first saw Pete, he was in, a, uh, in his own room. Uh, I looked at a cadenza, and I was just, I don't have any medical background, but I was shocked at the amount of meds that I saw. Uh, and I basically say, what do you do laying here all day and night and watch TV and take, take pain pills? And, and basically, that was his answer. Um, I brought this to the attention of a lot of people very quickly. Unfortunately, I didn't know that the family at that time was, was actively tracking the case. I wish I had known that, but I just didn't know then. Um, there was other contact between myself and, and Pete Sinclair in the following months and over the next probably year period, I guess. Mm. So, so maybe, General Mock, you could tell us a little bit about Iraq. I mean, what was happening over there that you think problems like this were emerging? I mean, what, did, what were you dealing with over there? I, I was in command of a very large organization, um, 25 to 28,000 personnel scattered over about six countries. Uh, about 15,000 of those were, were uniformed services. The rest were civilians and contractors. And you got to understand that we're taking, I don't care if it's an active duty soldier or a person out of a community and mobilizing them for something that they volunteered to do. We don't have a draft, so everybody is a volunteer. Uh, and putting them into situations where, quite frankly, they, they may be exposed to situations uh, that they've never experienced before. Just the fact that we're taking people out of their homes, out of their civilian jobs, and, and deploying them for a year is stressful enough. You know, the absence from family, the absence from employment, uh, the stresses and strains of being 8,000 miles from home is significant. That puts a lot of stress on individuals anyway. Uh, when they're exposed to what many of our soldiers were exposed to, it, it, it created a demand and need for a lot of additional kinds of care uh, that as we moved into this war, weren't always present to the levels they needed to be right off the bat. Um, by the time I left, we had psychologists in, in most of the, the forward operating bases. Those are the camps throughout Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, and all the other countries. And as good a medical care as we, as we could provide. Um, do you want me to go into the screening, or do you want Well, to... I guess I'm wondering, I know that you're sort of looking at this from a bird's eye point of view, but, but in your experience over there, I mean, how often did bad symptoms, I guess, start to emerge when the guys were over there? Um, Most of our, our soldiers, and what, what's on my experience with it was, um, it can be 130 degrees out. Uh, the soldiers have, carrying 40, 50, 60 pounds of weight on their backs, uh, they're doing things 18 hours a day, seven days a week that, quite frankly, most of us um, can't imagine. And you never hear them complain. Uh, um, th this is, we talk about the greatest generation, World War II, which it truly was. My father was a part of that. But, but we've, got, we've got a core of, of uh, young men and women, and they're not all that young anymore, but uh, that, quite frankly, we're, we all just ought to be awfully proud of. But they don't complain, and, and so when needs arise, especially emotional kinds of needs, and I don't profess to be a psychologist, there, there's the natural tendency to not step forward and say, I need some help. Um, probably true a little bit with Pete's case because he was in a leadership role and didn't want didn't to give that up. Um, we, we've made a lot of changes, and as far as the PTSD and the emotional distress kinds of issues where We've encouraged the chain of command, the leadership, and the soldiers to watch one another. And when those kinds of issues uh, become pronounced, is to step forward and say, you know, I need some help, and not have the stigma on security clearances and the other things that we saw in the past. It's a slow changing organization with respect to that, but I think we're moving in the right direction, uh, but probably not fast enough to meet the needs of, of what's required out there. Well, how much do you think that that's still in play? I mean, it's been 
however many years since the war started, people have talked about PTSD a lot. Why, why is it that there's still a stigma about coming forward or, or, or saying that they need help? On redeployment, now I can get into the screening process because I think it's, it's pretty important. But, okay. but if a soldier's in Baghdad, but it comes time for he or she or their unit to redeploy back home, they've done their year, um, they will be screened for medical issues, psychological issues, a lot of different things uh, <clears throat> at their camp, their Ford operating base. I'm just saying Baghdad is, a, is one geographical location redeploy back into Kuwait where they will eventually board an airplane and fly back home. Uh, they'll get all those briefings again. They'll be screened again. Uh, they redeploy, let's say, back to Fort Benning or Fort Dix or another location where they're demobilized. If they're reservists or if they're active duty, they will rejoin their unit back at home station. Uh, they'll probably go through that again. And then once in a reservist case, as Pete was, when they get back to their home station, let's say in Los Angeles, Los Alamitos, wherever that is, they'll get it all again. So there's multiple opportunities for soldiers to um, express what's bothering them, what their concerns are, and for medical professionals to take a look at them. Um, in my case, and I use my, my case as, as an example, I knew that if I said anything was wrong, it would delay my departure from Fort Lewis or wherever I was at at the time. Um, and I wanted to get home and have a beer and see the dog and see my family and, and do all those things that, that people do when they've been gone for a year. And I was not very interested in, in, uh, in many, of the, many of the deployments of hanging around and doing that any longer. Uh, I've heard, I don't think that's unusual either. A lot of the soldiers just want to get home. Mm -hmm. Then what happens is, and we've got other programs in place now, Yellow Ribbon, and I could go through a whole litany of them, where we've now involved the family, training the families to, to uh, be on the lookout for changes in personality, what signs and symptoms are of uh, PTSD and some of the emotional issues that we've seen. So now we're bringing the families on and educating them and encouraging both the families and the soldiers to participate in these kinds of programs. So, you know, it really depends on how open the soldier is individually to expressing and laying out what their issues are um, in some cases, they're, they're more severe, and people will point them out. But, but uh, you know, people are people, and if they want to hide things, they're very good at doing it. Now, I would just like to point out that Pete's case is a little different than, than it, what we're seeing here. And I don't we mean to discussing. contradict anything. You I know. Um, it was very clear, obviously, patently evident that Peter had PTSD when he came back, and I don't think that anyone um, suggested that there wasn't something wrong. And I don't think Peter said anything other than, I need some help. And I think an important question is, after we get to the point, which, and I applaud the Army for increasing the, the screening from, when, from the time when Pete came back, but once you get to the point when it's been identified that there is a problem and people are raising their hands, I think the next step is, well, what does the Army do about that? And that's where I think there's a lot of room for dialogue with the Army, because in my experience, standing by Pete's side, I think there were cer certain members of the organization who very clearly stated that they don't recognize PTSD, or if they do, you don't have it. And I think he's the poster child. And, I, and I've told you that, so we're kind of yeah. skipping the moderator, but let me, let me pick it up from there. The doctor there is sitting waiting for his turn, but, but uh, <laughs> I, I have been a pretty, and our moderator knows this, not shy on making statements when I think we're failing our soldiers and families. And every, I think everybody tries very hard. Um, they have the best interests of soldiers and families at heart. Um, but many of our mechanisms and, pro and processes are the same as they've been for decades. And, and it's hard to move these organizations around uh, you know, recently we've seen the Army commit to, through Department of Defense funding, about $19 billion in, in quality of life and dealing with uh, wounded, ill, and injured soldiers. And so that's a, that's a tremendous investment in, in the quality of life and dealing with some of these problems. But, but there are gaps in the system. And, you know, Pete is, is an example I became aware of. I wish I had become aware of. Uh, much earlier, I've told the family this. I wish I knew that they were involved. There's a lot of I wish I would have done something different. 
Um, and it ended up being a pretty tragic, very, very tragic case. But we've had a lot of successes as well where, where soldiers have stayed in the system. Um, and, and we had one of our soldiers, for example, lost both eyes, eyesight out of both eyes, uh, due to a rocket or mor mortar, uh, mortar attack in, in, uh, in uh, LSA, Logistics Support Area Anaconda. I'm not supposed to use acronyms, so I'm trying. That's my rule. Okay. <laughs> and that's a good rule. Um, and he has negotiated the systems very well, uh, you know, deploying as a per perfectly healthy, functioning uh, soldier, citizen soldier, came back totally blind. And, I, you know, I've been over to his house, and I just can't imagine being in that situation, but yet he, he serves as a speaker for motivation, you know, does motivational speeches, flies around the country. Uh, he's just doing as well as possibly can. And we have other soldiers that, that have short-circuited the system, tried to do it on their own, have fallen out uh, with, with very tragic personal uh, consequences financially and, and with their civilian jobs. So it runs the gambit. We've had successes, uh, but quite frankly, if you're on a, a major military uh, facility with a large medical hospital, Walter Reed or something, your chances for success are probably pretty good while you're still on active duty. When you... When you redeploy and then for the reservists, which, you know, we've had just probably hundreds of thousands now reservists that have gone and redeployed and then gone back into their civilian mode as, you know, our citizen warriors, they all don't get caught and they fall through the system. Uh, and we just got to keep working hard at that. And I think the Army's trying, but, but, it, but it's, not a perfect, it's not a perfect system yet. Um, and we just all have to work harder to try to make sure that, that uh, we, we minimize the numbers of soldiers that fall through the cracks because they're still out there. Well, well let's say that they do go into the system and they come to the VA. I just want to bring in Dr. Webb here. Um, in Pete's case, it, he had a, a bad back injury that sort of led to a, a chronic pain problem, and then he also had uh, mental health issues. He had um, PTSD and he had depression. How typical is that among among the the veterans that are coming into your system? I mean, what are you seeing when they first come in? Uh, before I answer, just one quick disclaimer. Um, my, the opinions I present are my own opinions alone and don't represent necessarily the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs opinion. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna, I am going to speak frankly. Uh, yeah. PTSD is very hard to treat uh, alone. And uh, the reality is we don't s tend to see PTSD alone. We see we, uh, the three Ps, I like, like to call them. Pain, PTSD, and post-concussion, also called traumatic brain injury. And you've probably read about that uh, with the improvised explosive devices. A lot of Iraqi uh, uh, combat soldiers are exposed to uh, concussive head injuries. And the combination of the pain, post-concussion, and PTSD is very hard to treat because each one plays against the other. If you're in pain, you can't do the processing you need to recover from, from PTSD. If you've got traumatic brain injury, it's hard to take medications properly and cooperate with uh, therapy. So I think we're recognizing this now that these tend to come in combinations that are very, very difficult to treat. At, at the Department of Veterans Affairs now, uh, we've set up a post-deployment clinic. Uh, we learned from the Vietnam era that, uh, you know, those veterans kind of got lost in the system. They returned, were thrown in the general patient mix uh, with World War II and World War I veterans with high blood pressure and diabetes and those kind of medical problems. And their deployment problems were missed. They were overlooked because they looked healthy. They were 25 and they looked, looked healthy if you, if you just eyeball them. So we've set up a separate post-deployment clinic we uh, set aside an hour for each combat veteran, and we deal with the deployment issues, what exposures they had, uh, explosions, environmental exposures, tinnitus. You wouldn't ask a 20-year-old about tinnitus normally, but it's a, it's a common problem in uh, the Iraqi war veterans. Uh, one good thing the VA does have is a computerized record system, and we document everything in there. And we have clinical reminders that pop up. If, if they served in Iraq or Afghanistan, certain questions pop up automatically, and we screen them for PTSD, uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, alcohol abuse and depression, and a number of other things. So uh, with, with that initial assessment, we have kind of an inventory of all the problems they have. And I'm, I'm still amazed. I'll see a 21-year-old guy who looks kind of healthy if you just saw him in the street. He's got 12, 13 problems already. And each one's uh, very serious to him or her. And uh, it requires specialists uh, trained to deal with uh, these, these uh, situations. And I think the VA is trying to get uh, the specialized uh, uh, expertise to deal with these combinations of issues now that we recognize that things tend not to occur alone. 
And uh, so, so what do you think then? I guess is, is the best way to treat some of these guys with complicated um, issues, like if they have PTSD and let's say pain, um, since this is sort of what we're talking about. I mean, what's the best way to to treat them? I mean, it seems like in a lot of cases, we're putting them on huge numbers of medications, and then you know, because they have PTSD, they might have memory problems, and they're not really able to remember what they've taken and when. I mean, how do you handle that? Uh, well, obviously, it's very difficult. And of course, the medicines are usually studied in uh, select groups that only have one problem. And then how they work in people with multiple problems is often unknown. And uh, one has to try things and watch the patient very carefully to see how they respond. And uh, there's a lot of talk in the VA about evidence-based. You know, we try and practice evidence-based uh, depending on what's in the literature and what's been shown to be effective in certain circumstances. And it requires careful integrated therapy. And we have a traumatic brain injury clinic and a PTSD clinic, and those groups work together very carefully. We're looking now at ways of integrating um, such care. Uh, the Tampa VA has been a leader. They have a, a program that deals with pain, uh, TBI, and PTSD. And so we're looking at integrating the care into one clinic um, rather than having, having to coordinate between multiple clinics. But we're just recognizing now the complexity of these seemingly healthy-looking uh, young people, that they have a myriad of very difficult problems to treat. And I, I did see Peter, and I was given sort of permission to talk about that. I saw him uh, at a, a post-deployment clinic. I didn't care for him later. But I remember uh, his problems were multifactorial. And I remember a few things he said to me that were very, still very striking. He, he said, there's not a day I don't wake up feeling miserable. And you think of someone his age uh, feeling that way. It's just a, a tragedy. And some of the things he described to me uh, were really horrific. Uh, explosions of children, body parts flying around. Uh, mutilated uh, corpses he would come across. It was, that can overcome the defenses anyone has. And, and I think perhaps one of the myths is that, you know, people that get PTSD are 18-year-olds right off the farm who don't have any life experiences behind them. And we see with Peter that someone even experienced in law enforcement who's sort of developed his sense of identity at his age uh, is still very prone to these overwhelming traumatic uh, events that can occur, which are just almost impossible to process. So clearly in Pete's case, though, something broke down, right? I mean, he came into the system, he tried to get help, he was at the VA in Long Beach. Uh, Jen, from your point of view, where do you think things really broke down? Chronic pain, because it only makes sense. You get blown up, you've experienced trauma. It stays with you mentally. We had a lot of experiences where Peter was not eligible or turned away for treatment for a physical issue because of a mental issue or he was not eligible or turned away for mental treatment because he had chronic pain and had been prescribed huge amounts of medications. So I think that's one point that I, I really appreciate and I think that was a breakdown. Um, I think another breakdown is that he didn't have unified care and that's actually what we were seeking um, after he had been out processed from the military and, and gone to the VA. We were looking for one place that could treat him sort of holistically for orthopedic problems, um, psychiatric problems, and pain management, including medication problems. It was a, a common refrain. We felt he was over-medicated. No one person who has PTSD as severely as he does with short-term memory loss is gonna be able to medicate themselves with 15 different medications. I mean, I, I'm a lawyer. I had to build a schedule and give him the pill. So when you take a patient like that and you send him home, or you put him in his room on base, you provide him with very limited access to um, mental care and no access to physical rehabilitative care, um, it's, it's not gonna go well. And at the VA, I think that um, there were some very strong attempts to bring in unified care, but unfortunately, at the end, he was prescribed medications and those medications led to his death. Right. So, you know, what happened was because Pete was dealing with his pain issues, he ended up um, getting treated with morphine and ended up just sort of uh, going to sleep one night and did not wake up. Um, so it took a few months for the coroner to figure out what happened, and it turned out that it was um, an accidental morphine overdose. Well, you know, and it's really surprising for us because as the family, we didn't know that Peter was on morphine. Peter had gone to the VA seeking help. Peter, Peter recognized that he'd been on these medications for a long time. He felt he had a dependency issue. And he went inpatient in the VA to be backed off of these medications. And then he went to the multidisciplinary pain clinic where a resident actually 
um, decided to reinitiate morphine in conjunction with codeine while he was on Valium. Um, he was an opiate naive patient. He had been off for a number of months. He had lost weight. Um, and um, the result was unfortunate. And we lost him. So I know, Dr. Webb, that you weren't necessarily involved with the care at the end there, but, but as a clinician, I guess, I mean, how can we make sure that we balance these things? I mean, it, it, you know, he had the pain, so he needed something to treat it, but he also, you know, had this whole sort of multitude of other problems. I mean, what are you supposed to do in a situation like that? Uh, again, to speak more in generalities uh, instead of the specific case, because I don't know the details. I didn't prescribe medication for him. But in, in general, of course, it is very difficult. And, and safety, of course, is, is paramount in prescribing any medication. Uh, for pain, there are a variety of approaches that should be tried before opioids. Um, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, muscle relaxants, uh, Neurontin. There's various medications that would be tried first. Uh, with opioids as a, uh, a last resort, they call that the ladder approach as you work up. And um, the use of opioids in chronic pain has gone through a metamorphosis during my career uh, from not being advocated initially uh, as being too dangerous uh, to being overused and then uh, and people felt they shouldn't be used for chronic pain unless there was malignancy. But more recently, there's been a feeling among medical people uh, that pain is undertreated. And in fact, in California now, it requires physicians to keep their licensure up to take 12 hours of pain management uh, uh, training. Uh, because the feeling has been in the past physicians have been reluctant to prescribe medications to relieve pain. That some physicians won't prescribe them at all because they are worried about possibly a bad outcome. And so one has to balance, it gets on a clinical judgment is when is it safe to give opioids. Uh, some of the things we do, uh, we ask patients to sign an opioid agreement uh, before they would take them, which gives sort of um, guidelines for their safe use, not to drink alcohol, not to take doses not prescribed, not to seek from additional providers, not to come back with a story your dog ate them, you know, things like that. But of course, people can sign that and they may be sincere at the time, but uh, obviously if they have other mental issues, uh, tr things troubling them, and uh, in the heat of a severe pain, they may decide to take extra pills. That, that's always a risk. And, or they uh, may forget. Or they may forget they took it. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not talking about Peter. I'm just I talking mean, about in, in, general, in general. People may drink when they're not supposed to. Um, there are various things that can happen. Um, uh, impulsive behavior when you have PTSD or traumatic brain injury. So uh, there is a danger, but yet can we not treat? Uh, it's been said there's a moral imperative to treat pain. And um, someone who has PTSD using pain all the time can't really deal with their PTSD because it's so miserable from their pain. So uh, it, it's like any uh, medicine. It's a two-edged sword. Uh, opioids can be very effective in treating chronic pain, and they can also uh, lead to a, a bad outcome. And I guess it comes down to clinical judgment and careful follow-up and prescribing them. So General Mock then, I mean, what, what, what do you take away from Pete's case? I mean, what, what do you think that, I guess, we could do to, to prevent something like this from happening again? I'm real glad that the family is so open to, to talk about this um, so that lessons can be learned and hopefully this doesn't happen again. Um, this is truly one of the worst case scenarios that, that, that we can come across or imagine. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of improvement just in the last few years, the recognition that uh, um, you know, we've got so many soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines across the country that, that have these kinds of issues that, uh, my personal opinion, this is not just a VA problem or an Army problem, it's really a national responsibility that that uh, the nation steps up and makes sure that our veterans are taken care of appropriately. Uh, and, I, and I've seen a lot of improvements that have, that have come out. And well, one of them is that I think it's like 13 of our major, major military facilities across the country. We now have a VA nurse liaison um, on board to help coordinate, set up appointments in advance uh, for our soldiers with these kinds of issues. Um, so our, my takeaway is, is learn from the lessons that, that we've seen out of this case and, and do everything we can to apply the right kind of remedies and resources. And I would ask the, the involved community members here is make sure your congressmen, elected officials know about the problem and, and tell them to, you know, it all drive, you know, it's all driven by, by resources, which is commonly called money and funding, uh, to support, you know, these programs for our veterans. 
Uh, I think we're doing a lot better, but we, we have a long way to go. This is a huge problem um, that, that's not going to go away soon. And, and these veterans have just come back. And, and again, I'm not a psychologist, not an expert, but I, I think we'll see more and more of them coming out of the woodwork as the years go by. And let's not make the same mistakes with, with this group of great Americans that we made with some out of our past wars, specifically Vietnam. Jen, from your point of view, I mean, what, what do you think would have helped you with the process? I mean, um, you know, what could have prevented your brother from, from dying, you think? Well, you know, it's actually an interesting question. <clears throat> I think there are two. One is from suffering, and one is from dying. I think that Pete suffered. I think that Pete suffered because um, he loved the Army. He really did. He loved the Army. It's in your blood. And he felt... <laughs> He felt that um, he felt that the army didn't hear him, and he felt um, abandoned, and it was difficult for him. Um, he didn't receive the care he needed, and he needed to be observed and cared for. I think that what killed him uh, was a combination of things, and um, I have a lot of questions, but I think closer monitoring of patients who have chronic pain issues as well as PTSD. Um, I do question some of the guidelines um, that would have led to, for instance, a resident um, prescribing these medications in a very, very uh, complex case in a young resident. Um, I, I have some basic questions, just... Um, I, have, I have a list of things, I guess. I, I started to collect my thoughts about... Um, you know, why, why we didn't have um, liver testing done before the, the opiates were restarted. He'd been on for a long time. And, and why, that, why that decision wasn't made. Um, he had a, we, we learned from the autopsy, he had um, some severe liver damage, most likely due to the chronic prescribed medications. And it severely decreased his ability to metabolize the dose that he was given. Um, I have questions about... why the dosage that was given to him was so high, given that he was opiate naive, and, and why a more conservative treatment, as you're suggesting, um, wasn't tried first or eased into these very powerful medications, and particularly the use of these medications in conjunction with other strong meds. And um, really a strong monitoring system that dealt with the whole patient rather than um, physicians or, or very well-meaning people who were dealing with one aspect of the problem. So I think we need significant systems change within the Army and VA. I think we need the Army and the VA to work together and to have a seamless transition for the soldier. And I think that um, people need to recognize that this is, this is a very severe problem. And please don't ignore these gentlemen and, and women who stand up and say, hey, I have a problem. Can I add something real quick? Sure. Um, what Jen just said about the two separate systems um, you know, you got the military systems for the soldiers on active duty or, you know, active or reserve, and you got the VA systems. Um, there's an effort underway right now, as I understand, some pilot programming going on to develop one disability retirement yes. review process. And I, and I think that's a step in the right direction. It's not going to solve everything right away or as quickly as it should, but, but at least there's recognition now um, on both sides, from VA, from the Armed Forces side, uh, the Secretary of Defense made a statement in 2007, care of our veterans and soldiers is, is my second priority right behind the war itself. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of resourcing going towards it and recognition, but, but this is a big ship, and it's, and it's hard, to, hard to turn it quickly. Yeah. So, Dr. Webb, I wanted to get you involved, too. I mean, you know, I, I know it's sort of difficult to have a kind of global view, but, but, but I mean, as a clinician, do you feel like, you know, there are enough guidelines being given out about, you know, morphine or, or opiate um, prescribing? Do, do you feel like there's enough guidance to tell people, I guess, about how to treat these really complicated cases? And is, is there anything we can do to improve that, I guess, in terms of their medical care? Um, I, I believe it was February of this year, I think it was the American Pain Society issued uh, a set of guidelines. It was a full issue of a medical journal of uh, precepts in uh, using opioids for uh, chronic pain. And I think those are, are guidelines we, we should follow. Um, 
we just had a educational session, our network, all the Southern California and Nevada VA medical centers had educational efforts of people involved with, with returning combat veterans. And uh, someone gave a talk on pain management and went over those guidelines. And I think we want to widely distribute those. And so we, we would definitely want to follow those um, guidelines. Um, I want to echo something that uh, General Mock said about the integration of care between military and the VA. The, excuse me. The VA is a great medical record system, which is computerized, but we can't see the military records in our computer. I think they have their own system and a lot of, a lot of paper records. So I, I, believe, I believe President Obama has made a, a goal of integrating the records, and I'm looking forward to being able to get better uh, documentation of what our uh, soldiers have been through during their military life. And often they have very uh, complex records, which um, we would like to review. I have to say, just to point out in Pete's case, um, for the medical and the physical boards up in Fort Lewis, um, the Army reviews Army information. And the Army information, at least in Pete's case, was extremely incomplete. Um, I actually personally had to find people around the country to provide witness statements as to what had happened to him. I had to track down all of his medevac records. I had to track down all of this information that I was very surprised that the Army didn't have and was not part of the evaluation board process or packet. Um, I think that that is a, is a great point that the doctors made. I think that the move to computerized records will, will be very important for various aspects of care as well as the board process. But um, to point out, um, I, I have to ask, you know, if, we have the, if you have the computerized medical records, how far do the treating physicians go in reviewing those records? You have the records at hand. But, but I do wonder, do the, do the treating physicians at the VA review those records at the time of, of treatment? Do they go back through it? Do they just look at the chart? Or, or is it just sort of for a, a more holistic step back when, when people do a periodic sort of deep dive review? How are they used? Well, for the initial evaluation, if we have the records, it would be expected to go through them completely and find right. out all the nuances of the care that might have an impact on the uh, present care. So I think that would be the standard of care to uh, go through everything. Right. Um, and I'd be glad to go over, uh, in, you know, with you if you like uh, the care of your brother and at a separate time. We can sure. go over. I, I don't know the details you're talking about, but I, I do want to say that medical residents uh, do not practice on their own. Uh, yes. There's always a supervising physician yeah. and who uh, oversees what they do. Yeah. Well, I think it's, is it time for questions? Yes. yes. Okay. So we're happy to take questions from the audience. So obviously lots of issues raised here, so... Good evening, folks. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we will now open it up to you guys for questions. There's two of us going around with handheld wireless uh, mics. So if you would, please state your name before your question. Um, wait for one of us to get to you. Just raise your hand. And also, let me see, um, just reminding you that it's going to be recorded for both video and audio podcasts. So if you can please speak into the microphone. Thank you. And we have a question to your left. I'm sorry, to your left. Hey, my name is Mike. Um, I suppose most of the discussion is focused on post-care of veterans. And so my question is uh, more focused on pre-care or initial oversight. Um, the face of warfare and military operations has obviously changed drastically. And I think that's reflected in the you know, greatly increased numbers of post-traumatic stress disorder from more recent conflicts. Um, so for the general, how do you feel that moving forward, knowing that this has changed so much and that we're seeing a lot more people coming back having seen traumatic experiences, we have to reshape and rethink um, our caution beforehand or our, our military strategy going into wars or, you know, or possibly seeking other solutions knowing the increased negative effects that we're seeing? If I could answer that, I'd, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be somewhere else uh, making a lot more money probably. But, um, you know, there, this has been an evolving process, and, and the TBI issue, the traumatic brain injury issue, is one that I'll give you an example. Is, is, is th There's a process now that, that before the soldiers deploy, there's an evaluation, and I'm sure the doctor could probably speak to this in more detail. But before the soldiers even deploy, uh, to kind of map where the soldier's at before they go, and then when they come back, there's a there's a comparison. I hope I spoke to that correctly. Um, there's a tremendous amount of resourcing that goes into protective 
um, vehicles, you know, just, I mean, I'm talking to the billions of dollars, uh, everything from the individual protective equipment that the soldier wears. Um, when I was deployed in the uh, summer of 2004, we were still welding armor around vehicles. Uh, there weren't, before 9-11, I think there was only like five to 900 uh, armor, up-armored Humvees, as we called them. Time I left theater in the summer of 2005, there was probably over 40, 50,000 vehicles that were hard armored and, and with some level of protection. Uh, no expense has been spared, and the media made a lot about not happening, a lot not happening fast enough. I got to tell you, the efforts that went to provide protective equipment for our soldiers is, is was unbelievable. Before a soldier even goes out on a patrol, for example, they, the soldiers are rehearsed. Uh, they, they do rehearsals of the exercise or the operation that they're going to do. They, they even do um, risk analysis uh, evaluations to, to determine if something goes wrong, you know, how quickly can they get out, how can they avoid uh, unnecessary risk. All these steps are part of the leadership process uh, that's involved before soldiers ever set foot in, in, into a combat operation. It's, it's really a sophisticated system, and it's probably much more so than we have ever seen. Can you ever make it perfect? No, you, you just won't, and that's an unreasonable expectation. But, but I think we owe it to the soldiers and the soldiers' families to take every possible planning step uh, to arm and equip our soldiers with the best possible equipment, to train the leadership as, as well as we possibly can, to demand excellence out of our, you know, the performance of our soldiers and their leadership, and not send them over there until they're, they're just as trained as, as absolutely possible. I don't know if that answers your question, but, but it's not taken lightly. We just don't deploy soldiers haphazardly uh, at all. I mean, there's, it's a full 360 review on about everything. I have a question to your right. I'm Dr. Judith Broder, and I'm the director of something called the Soldiers Project. And we provide um, care for anyone who's involved with OEF or OIF and their families. And the thing that struck me, and this is going to be harsh, I know, but I never really felt anything about Pete, except from you, of course, that it seemed to be with protocols and this and that, and I believe that is, it's like the human element is missing from the care, and without the human element, I don't think our service members are going to be able to get the kind of unified care that they need, and it breaks my heart because they have given themselves for us, whether or not we agree with what's going on, they've made the sacrifice, and we need to do more, but it's not just more money. To me, it seems to me there has to be a new attitude about the humanity that, and it, I haven't really heard it, and I just wanted to make a comment about that, not really a question. Well, I guess, how, how can we put the humanity back in the system? I mean, there are plenty of people who complain that they wait too long at the VA or they're not getting the care they need or, you know, no one's listening to them. I mean, how, how can we put that back in the system? Well, because I sit here stiffly doesn't mean that uh, people at the VA that took care of Peter didn't have humanistic qualities. Um, there were a number of case managers and therapists who really were heartbroken over uh, what happened to Peter and how he died. And... Um, we tried to express that to the family at, at, separate, uh, at separate times. So I do think there were people that were devastated uh, by what happened, and uh, you have to realize that. It's like a commanding officer in the, in the field. People are under your charge, and if something happens to someone, you just feel horrible. I think uh, there's a core of people at the VA that I work with that really do care. Uh, they took jobs to work with these returning, returning combat veterans because they felt society had really um, not uh, stood up to care for them. Uh, during this war, most of us weren't asked to sacrifice anything. We just went about our business, and um, I don't think that's right. And I think we've, we've tried to uh, volunteer to, to care for these veterans because we, we really do care. And it, it, it really uh, uh, affects us to our soul. That's all I can tell you, that sincerely the people I work with really do care uh, and do have humanistic feelings. Can, can I make a comment on this? The, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs is a guy named uh, Eric Shinseki who used to be the chief of staff of the Army when he retired. He's a, f a four-star general. Um, 
I don't have the term right, but wears a prosthetic foot. Uh, this is a, a soldier lost his foot in Vietnam, probably one of the smartest, most caring individuals um, I have ever met. His wife, Patty, I've met her on more than one occasion. Um, these, these are just super people, but this, this is the, the lead for VA, um, and you just couldn't ask for a better guy at the top. My experience with the Veterans Administration has been just what the doctor said. You know, it's, it's a big bureaucracy, but they've got some world-class um, resources available to them. Every time I've come in contact with them, um, they've just been superb. And, you know, it all gets down to leadership and individuals caring for one another. I mentioned earlier we're bringing the families into this more and more. Uh, families have much more of an impact uh, than a lot of times we like to admit. You know, you can have soldiers in charge of stuff, and soldiers will be soldiers, and we'll care as much as we can. Uh, but you bring the families into it, and it adds a whole new human dimension to it that, uh, that I think adds a dose of reality, and I think that's very important. And, you know, I'd like to add... The Soldiers Project, we actually know about you now. We didn't know about you before, or I would have been on your doorstep. We've heard wonderful things about what you do. I'd also like to add, as you can imagine, at least speaking for myself, um, there are moments in which I'm very angry. That being said, we're talking about very large organizations that are very complex bureaucracies. And I can say that um, even though we experience dark moments and some really awful times during this. Um, I know that Peter was able to, in certain instances, feel caring from people in these organizations. I know that the people that we met that were particularly effective were Jules. And I know that there are a lot of people in these organizations who are dedicated and who do try. So as angry, and saddened and you know galvanized to demand change as I am. I'm not able to turn my back on these groups and say, you know, as a monolith, they're without caring because I don't think that's true. I think as individuals, many people, including the people on this stage, are actually quite dedicated and I'm hoping that by the process of having these discussions and exp explaining to groups like this what happened with Peter, that we're able to actually affect change because Peter's gone and there's nothing we can do for him. But people in these organizations can actually help and save and rebuild other men and women in our society. And we have another question to your left in the midsection in the back. Hi, my name is Allison. Um, I work in Skid Row at a soup kitchen and many of our patrons are Vietnam veterans. Um, there's a lot of talk about improving the system. And my question was, how long are we going to ask our Vietnam veterans who have been waiting 35 to 40 years, or even our Gulf War veterans who have been waiting 15 years for a change in the system, how long are they supposed to suffer with PTSD and disabilities and the Gulf War syndrome, um, poverty, homelessness? How much longer are we gonna ask them to wait? Well, I, I will say that I, our, our facility has a, a social worker who coordinates with homeless organizations and goes out to shelters and works with veterans. So there is an active approach among uh, our social worker who works, and I, I don't know the details of it because I'm not involved with that, but I do know there is a, uh, a very aggressive program to try and bring the homeless in, into our uh, system. We even have a, a, a bus, a medical bus we take out to, we've taken out to shelters in the past. And uh, we also have an or, organization in Cabrillo where we can put people with subs older veterans with substance abuse problems and et cetera, homeless people that can stay. And, uh, so I think th there is some concern about the homeless in the VA. Question to your right over here. Hi, um, I'm gonna make this fast in speaking because I have a three-part question and I know there are a lot of people here who have questions. My name is Cynthia Chance, I'm with the Progressive Veterans Foundation and I, um, first of all, would like to say to Miss Sinclair, my heart goes out to you, I have four siblings and I can't imagine what you've been through. Um, I want to address two of my questions, please, to the doctor. Uh, first of all, I'm not hearing a lot of discussion about low-level uh, brain, um, brain injury. I'm hearing a lot of TBI, which of course is a big concern, but I'm, I've just learned recently from a colonel who's part of the uh, USC healthcare, uh, mental health uh, veterans 
facility um, that low-level brain injury is also being misidentified as bad behavior, um, and it's it, uh, men and women are being either sent home or simply disregarded uh, because it's not being identified. And I'm wondering if there's a new um, approach for that or identification of that. And also, uh, and I'm correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I learned recently that veterans actually can go to any hospital, private doctor, anywhere in the country and get served, and, and the VA takes care of that, but they cannot get prescriptions. The VA has to see them, and they are sometimes, because there are only so many VAs and there are way too many veterans, some veterans have to wait a very long period of time to get prescriptions, and why is this still happening? Because they could be going to doctors, this gentleman, this uh, woman's brother could have been to a doctor, and maybe her family doctor, whomever, a long time before, and gotten, if the prescriptions could have been approved by the VA. Um, so that seems to be a huge block in them getting treatment. And then also for, um, for General Mock, uh, I recently learned through um, Colonel Dave Grossman's book uh, on killing. He's a um, professor at, uh, was with West Point. He's now, he's just retired from Arkansas State University. He's considered one of the world's leading experts in military science. And his book states that uh, in World War II, 15 to 20 percent of the servicemen actually shot their rifles. In Korea, it was 47 percent, and in Vietnam, it was 90 to 95 percent. This is due to a combination of improved training techniques and the desensitization, desensitization, sensitization, I can't stand that word, of um, people in society in general through video games, movies, and what have you. Um, and I'm just wondering if would it not have been wise of the military knowing full well that they were training uh, these gentlemen and now women um, more fine-tunedly to be able to accept killing, uh, would they not also have foreseen the results as they were doing that training some time ago and maybe put in place the precautions that would have avoided what we're dealing with today with PTSD, et cetera? Sorry to be so long. Uh, so I guess I was complicated. I guess we should May start I with. Too, I don't mean any disrespect to any of the military people here. I guess we can start with the last question first. Okay, before I forget it, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think there's. I have never heard any. And, and again, this isn't totally knowing the answer because I don't know every aspect of training, but but I have not heard. Um, anybody devalue life in any of the training that that I've participated in? Um, you know, there are rules of engagement that that our soldiers are trained in, and if the rules of engagement are met, to use lethal force, that's what they do. There's as much training nowadays uh, to apply what they call non-kinetic. There's all kinds of fancy names for it, but non-lethal uh, devices as, as well. In fact, that's one of the, you know, there's nine principles of war, I'm not going to go through them, but on the joint side, the multi-service side, uh, and these complex conflicts that we're in, you know, one of them is, talks about rules of engagement and, and not unnecessarily using lethal force, you know, using non-kinetic or non-lethal force whenever we can. That probably doesn't answer your question, but um, our soldiers are probably better trained. Uh, we've got all kinds of training venues and equipment that, that probably makes them better shots. Um, um, th these are brave young and men, men and women who, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a case of, of them turning and running. I mean, they stand, hold their ground, and do what they need to do. I, is there a downside to it? There certainly is, and that's why we're here today, is, is there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes home with, the, with these soldiers. And, and admittedly, I think we're lagging uh, in some of our programs and trying to catch up to where we need to be. And like I said, I think everybody's trying. I've never seen anybody go to work and say, I'm going to screw up this job today and these patients, or I'm going to go screw up my soldiers as much as I can. Everybody goes to work with the attitude, uh, we're going to be successful, we're going to do the best job we can. I don't care if you remember the VA or, or the U.S. Army, Marine Corps, or whatever. But, but these are huge organizations. We've got and I might have the numbers wrong, 23 million living veterans today. Um, L.A. County has the largest veterans concentration, I think, of any uh, county in, in the U.S. Um, just within Southern California, we probably have a million veterans. Uh, just in Los Angeles County, this is a huge veterans uh, population centerpiece. Uh, there's a lot of effort that's going on outside of the governmental finance programs, VA, and what the Army does, 
just down in Los Alamitos, there's the Joint Force Training Base Veterans Center, Veteran Service Center, all privately funding, funded. They, they provide a multitude of services down there. Um, you know, war is conflict, and our young men and women stand up to the challenge, and I'm quite proud to say they do what they need to do. Uh, we're not going to stand up and throw puffballs at each other. I mean, these are brutal conflicts in many times. Uh, there's a sensitivity present in the chain of command that I've experienced. I've seen, I've heard about it, I've heard numerous examples of it. As I said, I've personally witnessed it, where we take that extra step to try to make sure that the soldiers get, don't fall through the cracks like we've seen here Jen talk about. Um, we're not going to catch them all, but, but it is a complex problem and it's not one you, there's no bumper sticker for it that says we're going to solve uh, these kinds of problems with our veterans overnight and even our warriors still on active duty. I mean, these are brave young men, men and women who are doing what they're called on to do. And, and I said I couldn't be prouder of them. So I don't think that answers your question. I'm not sure how to answer your question, but it's the best that I can do right now. And let's just, I guess we can answer one other one of your questions, I think, because there are some other people waiting. So maybe you could, I mean, Dr. Webb, what do you know about this issue of low-level brain injury? And, and does it get identified as bad behavior? And how, how, how do we figure out our way around that? I mean, what's going on? We call it mild traumatic brain injury or mild TBI. And about two years ago, I think the Department of Veterans Affairs realized that some patients with mild TBI were being overlooked and perhaps were being considered as behavioral problems. And um, at that time, there was a, a mandate that every uh, combat veteran coming to a VA hospital would have screening for traumatic brain injury. And there's a series of questions which they're all asked. Uh, first off, were you exposed to an explosion, an IED, et cetera? Did you experience any of these symptoms afterwards? Um, loss of consciousness, feeling dazed and confused, not remembering the event. And then ask about current symptoms like headache, forgetfulness, et cetera. And about 18% of our patients screen positive um, with that series of questions. So obviously, uh, traumatic brain injury is, is now called a signature injury of the uh, uh, war in Iraq. So it, it is very common. And we have a clinic to deal with patients with primarily mild TBI. Anybody can recognize major TBI. If you've had a, a, a fragment wound to the cranium, uh, that's, that's not hard to um, diagnose. But it's these explosions where there was no direct trauma to the head. It was the concussive wave comes and hits you. And you're dazed and confused afterwards. And people are put right back to work, at least at the time, several years ago. I think now they're observed more carefully. And so we do see that in a lot of people. And they, they still have persistent symptoms, such as forgetfulness, uh, et cetera. And as I said before, many of these also have PTSD. So teasing out is the forgetfulness from the PTSD or the TBI is very difficult. And we do cognitive testing. Uh, I think the psychologist spends six hours going over a lot of questions to try and tease that out. But often they are intertwined and hard to separate completely. But no, I don't think the VA is overlooking TBI. In fact, I think they're looking very determinedly for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, we do please want you to join us at our reception, and you can talk further with our wonderful panelists tonight. Um, we have a wine reception, so we do hope that you join us, and thank you so much.